Thanks for joining me for the Friday Reporter Podcast. My name is Lisa Camuso Miller, and I am a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., talking to reporters from all across the country about how it is they do their work and how it is we as communication professionals can do ours better. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Friday Reporter. I am extra lucky today to have my friend and colleague, Paul Kane from the Washington Post with me. Uh, PK and I have been knowing each other now for uh, for longer than I'd like to admit. I feel like I say that more often than not on this podcast. But uh, but boy, we're lucky enough to work with some really terrific people in this town and in the business that we're in. Paul Kane, thank you so much for joining me today. Anytime, anytime, Lisa. So. What I love about our friendship is that not only do we like, are we super fans of the boss and do we love to talk about all things New Jersey because you covered so much of uh, uh, Senator Torricelli and so many other. Let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about how it is you came to be a journalist. Sure. Uh, So I am a University of Delaware alum. Uh, the fighting blue hens, as we mm, called ourselves back then. I almost then. went there. <laughs> ah, yes. I, uh, I have a, a, a couple of UD masks that I wear up here in the Capitol. And, and last week I was pestering Cory Booker with some questions of um, some topic he didn't want to talk about. And he actually looked and said, the only reason I'm still talking to you is because you're wearing the Delaware mask, which is where like half my state ends up going. Yes, <laughs> um, so many, so many. <laughs> all uh, several of my best friends were from Jersey. I used to joke that it was the University of New Jersey South. Yeah, it's pretty um, close. <laughs> yeah. But so I grew up on the other side of the river, uh, the Delaware River, mm-hmm. on the Pennsylvania side of things. But uh, went down to the University of Delaware. One of my older sisters had also uh, gone there, and she went on to become a lawyer. And so, uh, like her, I was in the poli-sci program. I assumed that I would go on to be a lawyer. And... The, the most renowned uh, professor at, I think, the entire university, but maybe it's just the, you know, the arts and science program, uh, was teaching a course called pre-law, just a basic undergraduate, like, here's what a taste of what you'll get in law school. And um, so I immediately signed up. Everyone said, take, take the Dr. Jim Soule's class, he'll change your life. Um, and he was just, you know, an advisor to everybody. He was an advisor to then Senator Joe Biden and then Governor Mike Castle. Um, and um, he, so I took his class mm-hmm. and at the very end of the semester, the very last lecture, we gave him a standing ovation. I was standing and cheering. Wow. And in the back, in the back, he was that good. He was just brilliant. Um, and then, but in the back of my mind, I was saying, Holy cow, I hated this. I hated the law. I do really? not like this. Yeah. And I am not going to be a lawyer. And all I could think was, well, I saved myself three years and an incredible amount of debt uh, by avoiding going to law school. No but, I had no, but I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And then the next semester, I signed up for an intro journalism course just because it was a requirement. Like I had to do a writing class. So that, that checked a box. Sure. And um, sure enough, it, it, it scratched my itch. And I realized pretty quickly that what I wanted to do was to, to write about the laws and the government and the people that create the laws uh, and, the poli- and the political campaigns that go into, uh, you know, making laws. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I, I didn't want to be a lawyer, you know, arguing 
before judges, I wanted to be telling stories about that. And so that's how I got pretty uh, hooked into journalism. And after a couple different uh, jobs in the Philly area, in the mid-90s, I went down to D.C. and started at this place called State's News Service. Mm-hmm. It was a, a wire service that focused on smaller papers that didn't couldn't afford their own bureau in D.C. And so you'd write for five or six different papers at once. Interesting. Um, and then um, the Bergen record, uh, the record of Hackensack, New Jersey, Bergen County, yeah. the northern northernmost county right across the river from uh, Manhattan. Mm-hmm. They hired us, states and service, to have full time. They dedicated. They wanted one person to do the the full time thing. No no part time. No writing for other papers. And they they chose me. And so. In the late 90s, I started writing for the, the record in, in Jersey and sort of focused intensely on the New Jersey delegation. Yeah. Um, and it was just a, a fun, crazy delegation with lots of characters, not just in the, the, among the lawmakers themselves, um, uh, but you also had a crazy collection of, of press uh, folks who would go on to do various things of... of of stature, uh, mm-hmm. Sean Spicer. People mm-hmm. for, people forget that Sean Spicer was in the New Jersey delegation, uh, working for a uh, one or two term wonder um, named Pappas. Um, <laughs> I don't forget uh, that. <laughs> you know, uh, there was uh, Trent Duffy, the future Bush White House, I think OMB uh, uh, advisor. He might have even gone higher up than that. Um, I think was working for Rodney Freelyheisen at the yes, time. Was. There was a whole there was a whole collection of people, and I I joke with uh, anyone who asks me about whether I went to get my master's in journalism. As I just say, no, man. For about two or three years, I covered New Jersey politicians, and for journalism, <laughs> for journalism, that was a master's degree. It is of the highest order. It is. It's uh, a school of hard knocks, if you will. Yeah, I mean, you just. You had you had you had people like this guy Bob Torricelli who you referenced and everyone called him the torch. Like he was in the middle of a three or four year FBI corruption ethics probe, and yet he at one point launched what was it thirteen or fourteen days of torch where he was running for governor. Yes. Um. You know there were just it was just an undaunted type of. Uh, of personality that was in the state's delegation, you know, anybody else would be hiding under a rock and hoping not to uh, draw any attention. Oh, to themselves. I mean, that's right. And, and and he was jumping up saying, "I should be governor," um, and almost and, and like the crazy New Jersey system of you know county chairs having all the weight mm-hmm. came came within like one sharp James endorsement of actually muscling Jim McGreevy out of. Uh, that primary. It was really, um, yeah, it was quite a primary to watch too. Yeah. Um, and I think that was when you were on the other side of it working for Donnie D. Um, uh, you know, it, it just, yep. it was an amazing, amazing collection of, of I was up there too. when Bob Torricelli ran against um, uh, Dick Zimmer for the first time. It was oh. on record the most expensive at the time Senate race in the country, and it was yep. a bloodbath. I will never in my I still have scars on my back from, you know, from all of the the work and the and the 
projects that I worked on at the time. And I wasn't even at the state party at the time. Later on, I went to work for the state party. But yeah, I worked for the governor, excuse me, the uh, the Senate president who was the acting governor. New Jersey uh-huh. is one of these sort of unicorn states where there is an election, a political election every single year. It's an off cycle, uh, yeah. off cycle place. So everything is political. And there's 544 municipalities. Don't check me on that. I think that's pretty close. And each uh-huh. one has their own uh, school board. They have their own uh, mayor and township council and they have a uh, police force. It is very, very political and has no media market. So, yeah. you know, it's New York and it's Philadelphia. And I talked about this in an earlier episode because I talked to Mike Catalini, who covers the Associated Press now for uh, in the Trenton Bureau. But it's like it's this great place. And Bergen County is it, it, w- without question one of the most amazing places to to definitely have spent time. So mm-hmm. how after that, after doing all of that, how did you end up? Was that did you go right to roll call after that? Yeah, that was the thing. So at, once I was at writing for the record and doing all these stories about the New Jersey delegation. Um, but my story started getting more noticed in the sort of political insider world of Washington because New Jersey is such a special place. Mm-hmm. And um, I, my friends over at Roll Call uh, were, took note. And uh, Mark Preston, who worked at State's News Service with me, uh, he's now a CNN's political director. Mm-hmm. Um, he he jumped from states to roll call first, and he sort of prepared the way. Um, I and didn't then, that. Yeah, and uh, and eventually uh, they had an opening, and so they hired me in 2000. And I wrote, I did a couple months there of just sort of covering Senate races, but then the Senate landed as it is now. Uh, the Senate landed at 50 50 mm-hmm. and um, they decided they needed more Senate coverage. And so they assigned me to go up to the Senate with Mark Preston. And the two of us were basically covering all the inside out of a 50 50 Senate, a new Bush Cheney White House, mm-hmm. um, you know, 9 11 anthrax attacks, uh, you know, just a, a crazy day. couple of years. Yeah. yeah. No question. Um, so it was a shift. It was a big shift in terms of my journalism because I went from, you know, trying to write for an audience of, you know, a fairly wealthy county in New Jersey, uh, Bergen County. Um, but, you know, people who don't follow every inside out move by chief deputy whips in Congress right. to to writing for an audience of people where your your primary readership were are members of Congress themselves and the staff. Mm-hmm. Um, years later, when I was at the Post, as, as Joe Lieberman was retiring, and one day I was walking with him to his office asking him questions, and he just politely said, you know, Paul, I'm just still always going to think of you as my local newspaper reporter. And what he meant was that for him, as a U.S. senator, Roll Call was his local newspaper. That's right. <laughs> in the same way somebody might, you know, be sitting in, uh, you know, in South Jersey picking up the, the Burlington County Times to try and see how, their, how they covered their son's high school track meet. Right. Uh, right. He, would, he would pick up Roll Call and dive into all the stories and all the inside gossip and who was rising and who was falling and... Um, and you know, that was what I did for the next seven years until, uh, the post then had this 
moment where uh, a couple of people, Jim Vandehei, John Harris, broke away from the Washington Post and started Politico, along with Mike Gallen, mm-hmm. a, a former Postie at the time who was then at Time Magazine, and that sort of created this rupture in the journalism moment in Washington, and all of a sudden everybody needed to hire a younger, smarter, um, uh, you know, webbish, savvy type of person, mm-hmm. and um, you know, like Chris Eliza had jumped from Roll Call to the Post and was writing the Fix blog on all things politics and campaigns, right. and so they they hired me to start a congressional blog. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was sort of this moment where the D.C. media scene took a big major shift and it really, everyone started to cover every sort of inside play and inside move. And, you know, the days of waiting for a bill to be sort of be actually voted on in committee before it would get major attention, you know, fell by the wayside. and yes. Everybody started covering every movement of it mm-hmm. um you know it, it's it's like that i, was I like wonder a tectonic it, shift in coverage yeah. and media at that time I, I i mean i remember it vividly uh just in terms of you know not only pitching but also just working with with you all in the on the journalism side it just was a tremendous difference there was a race to get the first uh everything you know and that yeah. was and that was huge and the fact that you went there to do uh, their online content for some time, the blog, it also mm-hmm. was in the paper as well. That was, mm-hmm. a, I mean, just a, a crazy busy time. Like, I mean, you had great training having been at Roll Call when you were, but uh, to move over and to be in that space at that time was was really just exciting and, and, and busy. We, that At that time in 2007 and 2008 into 2009, we still had separate offices for the print edition, quote unquote, and the online. I remember that. It was uh, the online office was over in uh, across the river in Arlington, Virginia, at the courthouse metro stop. Um, and once a week, I'd go there. It was really kind of cool. It was a much better office than anything we've ever had in my <laughs> first fourteen years. The young hip cool. blog department. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Um, but that was where we were as an organization and we really have completely flipped that on its head now. And, you know, the print edition is really, it's still important. There are still some ads, it still brings in some revenue, but it is much more a secondary thought, you know, over the years we have repositioned ourselves. Um, and that's only partly because our, our owner, you know, Mr. Bezos, Mm -hmm. uh, uncle Jeff with his, money and pushing us to think more digitally but we were making that switch um even before that even before that ownership yeah yeah what is it that you're covering now like what specifically like if if i'm if i'm giving you a call and i want to pitch you on something tell me what are you caring the most about these days Um, in terms of coverage so what a a couple years ago um my our our politics editor uh steven ginsburg talked me into doing something a little bit different and trying to write a column a couple times a week that is more analytical, um, more uh, 30,000, 60,000 feet high about where things are going, where things are headed. Um, and so what I would, what I try to do with this column is to take a, a series of events 
that might be happening all at once, all at once in disparate parts of this congressional complex and explain where this place is heading. I was on legislation or a nomination or um, big fight. Um, or sometimes I'll burrow down pretty low and narrow and focus on something like what I did over the weekend was a column on Liz Cheney, uh, who's the third ranking House Republican, heading heading into their three day retreat for House Republicans down in Orlando and looking at her as an example of this still sort of fractured Republican Party mm-hmm. and how she is taking this lead role of the anti-Trump wing um, and how that creates this these fissures. And it often happens with her and Kevin McCarthy, who's you know decided to be very much on the pro-Trump side of things. And, you know, use that one person as an illustration of a broader thing that's happening in the Republican Party. Um, for Thursday, uh, day 100 of Biden's administration, I'm going to do a similar look at Chuck Schumer because, uh, Schumer will have day 100 at the same as majority leader, the same day as Joe Biden. They, they, they took the majority once Kamala Harris was sworn in as VP on January 20th. Mm -hmm. She provided that 51st tie breaking vote. So it's a look at his first hundred days, um, and that, and sort of as through a broader lens, what does it mean for the Republican? Uh, sorry, for the Democratic Party. Sure. Um, so that's those are the types of, of things that I'm trying to write. It's a little bit more voice and authority, but it's not like my own opinions. Frankly, I've been around here long enough to know that my opinions pretty much stink. Um, <laughs> well, so that leads me into my next question. And I don't really want you to, it's a, probably a longer um, story than what you and I even have time for today. But tell me what it was like to be in the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, sure. You know, I'll, I'll just try and give a run through. You know, that day, uh, people forget the night before seems to be the most cataclysmic night of of what we thought was the the young Biden presidency because that the Georgia runoffs had happened mm-hmm. and you know overnight Warnock was declared the victor and it was clear that Ossoff had pulled ahead and that they were going to have the majority so I started cranking out a, a quick profile of chuck schumer is like you know the guy who finally caught the truck you mm-hmm. know the dog who finally caught the truck he's been trying to be majority leader for the last 20 years and right. he's got it um and i went up to the capitol to get there in time for like an 11 30 in the morning schumer valedictory press conference and uh i hit the final few typed the final few words of that column and filed it to my editor it was very excited. And then at one o'clock, a little before one o'clock, I went inside the Senate chamber and watched the Senate, along with Vice President Pence, march over to the House, um, where I knew they'd be coming right back quickly because in the alphabet of the Electoral College, Arizona was going to come up, I think, second, maybe third. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they came right back. And by one thirty. You know, my job was to be inside the, the gallery above where the press sit and, and just to file to the congressional pool 
color from that scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I was focused on doing. And I was, you know, I was keeping notes in this, uh, this little leather bound thing that turned out to be a real savior for me. Um, and really not quite fully aware of what was going on outside. Mm -hmm. And when I, I pop my head out, people will be looking out the windows into in our press office. And I noticed a phone call and somebody was asking whether senators seemed to be aware of what was happening. And I was just like sort of no. And I went inside and at about 10 after two, um, I saw down below, I could see Secret Service motioning and Pence getting up from his chair and moving. And I knew right then that that meant something bad was happening. Yeah. So I went up and ran into the press office and ran through um, yelling that they pulled Pence out of the chair. They pulled Pence out of the chair. And then I ran around to go downstairs to the second floor where the Senate floor is. And um, the only other reporter who followed me was Igor Igor Bobic mm -hmm. uh, of the Huffington Post. Yeah. And we got, and we got down to this landing and we couldn't see Pence. We didn't know where he went. And then we could hear screaming and yelling and the sound of a baton clanging. I thought the baton was the police actually starting to hit skulls of protesters. Oh Cause I gosh. had just, I had just assumed that like the Capitol was sort of indestructible. Of course. Um, but at the time I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a notebook and I'm not much of a war correspondent. So I went back upstairs mm -hmm. um, and I, but I went up one flight of stairs and the Senate Sergeant at Arms staff just grabbed me and pulled me into what is the VIP gallery where Mrs. Pence and Greg Pence had just been sitting. Oh, wow. And I, and I looked down onto the Senate floor and I could see people running around with guns and looked around and they were bolting doors shut. People meaning uh, uh, Capitol Police, Police and other Capitol yeah. Cap mm -hmm. Capitol Police security, and I was like, "Well, this is different. What the heck?" Um, and I climbed over to where the press were, and basically all the press that had been sitting outside in an office were pulled in, and there we were, uh, hunkering down in the Senate. Wow, the Senate chamber itself. There was a guy with a an Uzi or some sort of automatic uh, weapon draped over one shoulder and an orange sash on the other shoulder uh, saying police um, because it's, it's like what happens in riots. They want the police to be known. Uh, and he, he was, he was standing in the, the well of the Senate with this Uzi two feet to his right was Chuck Schumer two feet to his left was Mitch McConnell and all he did was look at each door in a rotation. My gosh! In, in case they broke in, mm -hmm. um, people were. Uh, I mean, the Capitol Police basically took over the scene. There was a real senior officer that went to the top of the podium and was barking out orders. Uh, Amy Klobuchar at one point looked at her phone and said, "Shots fired! Shots fired!" That was actually a false report at the time. Mm -hmm. It would be another 15 or 20 minutes before the police shot um, the rioter, Ashley Babbitt, as she tried to storm onto the House floor. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, they just said, everyone, we're evacuating. And they said at first, we're evacuating to the, 
the Congressional Visitor Center, which is this underground basement that was meant to be a fortress right. built after after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time we went down through the elevators to the basement, by the time we got there, there was a Capitol Police officer who was guarding the door to the CBC, screaming that it had been breached. Oh, my gosh. Um, what we now know from the impeachment trial was that that was Chuck Schumer who found that out. Yes. His detail, his detail brought him in there and they came within yards of uh, these rioters I saw the turned around, turned around and ran out. Mm-hmm. So then they redirected us in this like running underground passage from one office building to the next, to the next um, with senators their staff, the sergeant at arms staff, the press, all of us evacuating together. My goodness. Um, to where we finally ended up in this one massive hearing room. Um, and at this point, it was just a bizarre moment where, like, we were all in this thing together, you know, uh-huh. in weird, weird moments. Chris Coons was down to, like, 3% on his, uh, his phone, and he walked up to me, and he's like, hey, PK, uh, I see you have a charger. <laughs> wow. And then pretty soon I was like the guy with the charger and Martin Heinrich came over and he wanted to charge his phone so he could call his wife. John Hickenlooper had lost his, his phone in all of this and he didn't, and he couldn't call his wife. And somebody said, well, I'll call her for you. And he goes, I don't remember her the number. Phone number. Wow. She's, she's just in my contacts. But so one thing, when I ran upstairs at that moment where I didn't have a phone, I didn't have a notebook or anything. Igor, God bless him, took his phone, hit record, and he ran downstairs. I remember seeing that, the footage that he grabbed, yeah. That that footage has become one of the most important historical documents of that day because there had been a real bad like bunch of like Twitter conspiracy that like the Capitol Police were complicit and they were doing this on some sort of inside job and they were letting the rioters take charge. Mm -hmm. And instead, Igor ran down and captured the video of Officer Eugene Goodman, um, you know, a veteran, senior, black Capitol Police officer in this clash with about 15 or 20 white, horrible, racist, carrying Confederate flag and wearing shirts about Auschwitz and um, and then, you know, backs up the stairs and brings these guys away from the Senate floor, yep. where at that very second, they were still trying to lock down the doors of the mm-hmm. chamber. And Igor got that video, and we were able to then piece it together and realize from my little, I just started taking notes about little timestamps in this, this book that I had up in the press gallery, and we were able to figure out my God, Eugene Goodman might have prevented a real disaster. Yes. Um, and the heroism of the Capitol Police then began to become a different, proper, correct, well, thank understandable. Goodness. Right. Yeah. Um, what they went through in that day is the type of hell that was the, practically medieval. Yeah. You know, there were yeah. there were guys there were guys with bloody knuckles. You know, because it was just hand-to-hand combat with these people who were trying to do just horrible horrible, things yeah 
Horrible so, things. Well, you, you had know. a front row. You had a front row seat for something yeah. that that still to this day and for many, many, many years to come will just. It just um, it affected so many of us in 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 a similar way in that we've all worked and spent so much of our lives in that building. But yeah. um, to have had the, I mean, to have been there and to have, well, thank goodness you're okay. Um, mm-hmm. But also to have had that experience is just, it's just remarkable to me um, and really yeah. shows just sort of how the capital works. And that's, I mean, that's why I was so eager to, to chat with you about it. Cause I wanted to know more about, um, about how that was for you. I wanted people to have a better sense of how close, you know, the members were with the media, were with the Capitol Police officers. Everyone was working together to stay safe and do the right thing. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. Yeah. No, we were able to, use, between using the Igor video and then a tip that I got, we were the first to be able to report that that Mike Pence was not immediately evacuated. When they pulled him out of the Senate chair, they brought him into an office that is just off the Senate floor. Mm-hmm. So that when so that when the rioters got to the step and Eugene Goodman looks over his left shoulder uh, to see if the Senate door is shut, at that moment, Mike Pence was 100 feet away, maybe like 75. I actually paced it off. My gosh. And, you know, Mike Pence was there. They were these were people that were chanting, "Hang Mike Pence!" They were coming for Mike Pence. That's that's right. That's right. And they were within seventy five feet of him. You know, if oh. the timing had gone a slightly different way, you know, it, they they came really close to doing incredible, incredible damage. Um, you know, and what happened? And they, the Capitol Police leaders never want to say it this clearly, but. They were so overrun that what they decided was to essentially surrender the building in order to protect the people who work inside the building. And yeah. that became their mission. Mm-hmm. And they succeeded. They, sure they succeeded in that. You know, there's still a lot of trauma that people go through. Um, and it's not great. It's not healthy. But. There was, you know, among the senators, the congressmen, their staff, the media, everybody came away physically safe. Um, And, you know, that became their mission. Once they finally got some reinforcements from the Metro Police Department and other federal, federal forces, they were able to retake the building. But they essentially surrendered the building in order to save its occupants. And they did their job in heroic fashion. They sure did. They sure did. And they deserve all the, they deserve all of the attention that has been showered mm-hmm. on them and none of the criticism because they did the absolute best they possibly could have. Um, yeah. I mean, having worked there, you know, these people, you, you get to know them. It's like the capital is like a small, it's like a small city uh, under mm-hmm. the dome, you know, and you really do get to know these people every day. Like you get to know your pharmacist or you get to know your, uh, you know, your local grocer. You get to know the people that are guarding the building and keeping you safe every day. And when those people are challenged in the way that they were and acting yeah. and doing what they what they did, it's just the stories. I'm sure your, Eugene Gitman is, is the one that we've come to know the most because yeah. of the coverage that uh, and the footage that Igor had had captured that day. But certainly, uh, there are hundreds more uh, stories of heroism uh, that day. 
So well, that's, that's really helpful. And I know uh, as we chat here, it's time for you to get back to the Capitol. So let me let you do that. Um, but before okay. I, but before I do, yeah. thank you so throw much. Um, no problem. You can throw out another question or two. I've got, all right. I've got two more for you. Uh, right. Washington, D.C., living in a pandemic, trying to keep our lives uh, at least sort of interesting. What, uh, what, what are you most looking forward to doing this weekend? This weekend? This is a great question because Friday night, April 30th, 7.05 p.m., I am going to be in at my first Major League Baseball game uh, since 2019. Um, awesome. I I know to be clear, I am still a Philadelphia Phillies fan, uh, first and foremost. Of course. But I live in the Washington Navy Yard area. I am three blocks away from the Nationals ballpark. And, you know, I just because I love baseball, uh, and heck the Phillies are here nine or ten times a year, yeah. I usually go to I usually go to at least fifteen games a season. Sure. For for the fun of it. And uh all last year, I just, you know, couldn't go to a game. And it was it was a little bit painful um, because and it, during the pandemic, I developed this thing where I started doing walks. I've never really been much of a walker, but mm-hmm. I just had to, to get out and move. And mostly it was for mental health. And then pretty soon I realized I was actually losing weight. So I was like, well, I should keep doing this. <laughs> and part, a byproduct. And, and part of it, uh, part of my walk uh, most every day was to go over to Nationals Park on the first base side where they have these steps. Mm-hmm. And I would just run steps for like 20 minutes. Awesome. Um, and one time late in the baseball season where we couldn't watch any games, uh, my, my girlfriend was driving me home. So um, the Phillies were playing the Nats at Nats Park and she just realized it pulled over parked there was parking it was easy to get there was nobody going out and we like snuck up to this one spot where we could kind of climb up a little bit and peek over this fence and sort of see the infield awesome and and i kind of watched a half inning of baseball uh the phillies went down in order one two three so i decided that was a bad luck charm and i would uh <laughs> Gotta go. Go. <laughs> go, wa- go watch the game somewhere else. We ended up losing, but I am going Friday night. Uh, that is my that is my fourteenth day after shot Pfizer shot number two. Congratulations! So it's, it's Freedom Day, and I am going to celebrate by going to my first Major League Baseball game in, in since two thousand nineteen. Feels like DC weather is going to cooperate too for you. Let's hope so. <laughs> I don't even care as long as it doesn't rain. I just want to be at a ballpark. I want to hear the national anthem. I want to buy a beer and a dog and just, you know, hear the crack of the bat. And do, that's right. And just get back to, get back to what we love. So my final question today is who would you recommend as a future guest for the podcast? As a future guest for the podcast, my bias leads to the Washington Post and that would be my coworker, Sungmin Kim, who is, uh, uh, who covers this hybrid beat between Congress and the White House for us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or Caitlin Collins, the CNN White House correspondent. Um, those would be my, my first two. Okay. Uh, those are great, the, great choices. Off the top of my head. Those will be, those will be the two that I, uh, I will make sure that they know that they were nominated by you 
to be future guests right. on the podcast. All right. PK, thank you so much for your time today. Sure. It's great to catch up. All right, Lisa. And that's today's episode of the Friday Reporter. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.